Hi, and welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a fourth-year graduate student um, at Middles Tennessee State studying public history. Please welcome Heather Shire. Hello. Hey, uh, So what's your uh, random weird fact for the day? Uh, my random weird fact is that Napoleon's penis was stored in a basement in New Jersey for like the past few decades. Yeah, that's freaking wild and how it got there. That's that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you want to know how it got there? Yes, please. Okay. So um, allegedly after Napoleon died, they did an autopsy and someone there cut off his penis and gave it to the priest who was, you know, witnessing the whole thing. And then he took it back to Italy and he died in some like weird blood vendetta and it bounced around his family until it went to like an art dealer in Paris. And then someone bought it and put it on display in New York. And then this urologist, John Latimer found it and thought it was just not okay for people to be making fun of it. You know, they were like mocking its size and everything. It was a big joke. So he bought it and put it in a box and kept it in his basement until he died, like um, within the past 10 years or so. So now his daughter has it, but he doesn't show it to anybody. He offered to give it back to France to be buried with Napoleon. And France was like, no, thanks. We're good. We don't want it. <laughs> they don't want to disinter someone just to return their member i guess yeah and they're like you can't prove it's his you know we're not going to do a dna test to you know make sure that it is we just, just let's just forget about this yeah oh my god that's that's wild <laughs> <laughs> i know i did a whole paper on um john latimer as a collector because he collected a lot of things and um I, I, I presented that paper at a colloquium at Auburn and like the faces were just so good. There was some like quote that I gave about holding history in your hand that really got a lot of laughs. <laughs> I had to rewrite that portion afterward. <laughs> yeah. Big surprise there. <laughs> mm. uh, well, I should also ask, what are you drinking today? I am drinking a Beta Purple Haze. Good old raspberry beer, my favorite. Solid, solid choice, especially for the summer. Yes, for um, real. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having uh, Brooklyn's Summer Ale, which is a, a pale ale seasonal. Um, mm, so, yeah, I also needed something light because it's like 90 degrees. When we were recording this, it's 90 degrees out. It's insane. Yeah, it is so hot outside. Like, I just, I don't want to go outside. I don't even want to get in my car because it, it feels like hell's sauna. And yeah, I'm outside turn it on and leave it for 10 minutes with the AC blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, cheers, long distance. Cheers. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. This is what I needed. <laughs> so, you study public history, and I got to interview... One of your uh, your cohort, I suppose, um, mm -hmm. a while back talking about museum design and, and we talked a little bit about monuments. So what's your area within public history? So I, I do museums, too. Um, I've 
worked on some similar projects. I think the big project that Lindsay talked about was one at a place called Bradley Academy. It's a museum and African-American cultural center. Um, I did some work there too, um, but not, not on the, the exhibit part like she did, but I've, I've got to install exhibits and I've done everything from like administration kind of studies to, you know, writing text for museum panels. I've, done everything in between, but I, I really focus more like for my dissertation research on collectors and, um, the, the theory behind collecting, which believe it or not, there is a theory, there is collection theory. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. So, um, I really focus on world war two because when I started graduate school, um, in history, I was like, I want to write about world war two, but yeah like there are a million books on world war ii and finding your niche finding your one little spot to contribute um is really hard in that field so i found it amazingly and i'm rolling with it so i have to ask when you talk about collectors are we talking like E.T. Barnum collectors, or are we talking about, you know, like people that make museums in their houses type thing? Um, I mean, a little bit of both. It's um, everything from just the people who, you know, find cool trinkets and, you know, like someone has an obsession with frogs. So they have a million like porcelain frogs in their house. And you're like, why does this even exist? You know, <laughs> like just throw those in the trash. But um, everything from that all the way to giant museum collections is is in my focus <laughs> so are there like multiple theories of collectors like is it asking the reason why people collect things or how they organize their collections or both both because there's um there's theory surrounding why people collect and what like what drives us to collect things and then there's also theory around how we organize those things and what that says about our personality. So for my research, I study um, American soldiers who collected things in the Pacific theater and in Europe, in the European theater. Um, And one of the big ones, one of the big theories for why they collect is to have some sort of control over their environment, over their experience, because when you're in wartime, um, they have no control. You know, they could die in the next five minutes. Um, they have, they collect to gain some kind of control over what's happening to them at this time. It's, it's you know, it's kind of weird. There's also like a Freudian theory where, you know, like um, you collect, the like guys collect things to have control over it because they aren't being gratified sexually. It's, you know, it's weird. There's all kinds of weird things out there, but <laughs> hmm. so, so then, but that also kind of makes sense. Sorry, <laughs> because you know these guys, especially in the Pacific theater, like they aren't having sex, so that the need for excitement to go out and search for things to collect to have as souvenirs would kind of fulfill that, you know, that longing that that exists from a lack of sexual gratification. So then are women less often, would that argument argue that women are less often collectors because 
they don't seek out sex the same way as men do. Definitely. In the way that our, like, our social world is organized. So I don't think that's like, well, women just don't seek out sex. I think it's like <laughs> Western values play a big role in determining that. But yeah, well, you know, according to the men who wrote these books, <laughs> theory, <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, that is actually um, something I've came across, an idea that men are more often likely to be the collectors rather than women because of their need to control and um, organize things like that. Like, you know, because us women, we don't care. We don't care what happens. Oh, I was gonna we say, can go without sex for ages. <laughs> well, and this argument also misses the point of like, to be a collector, you have to have some amount of disposable income that allows you to like often purchase or gain access some way to things you're collecting. And like mm-hmm. historically, women have not had a lot of disposable income. Yeah, that's that's very true. That that's a good point. You know, that's one that actually, like, I've thought about in terms of you know economic disparities, but not in you know a gender difference. So, yeah, I'm idea. just thinking that like if your husband, when you get married, gets to control like your whole dowry, then like, yeah, of course he's not going to let you go out and start your rare coin collection because <laughs> that's frivolous. Let me collect my other weird shit. You never know what it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I collect vintage vases from, you know, places in the Orient or, so, you know, some, some something weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So so with these collectors, when you're looking specifically in the two, you know, theaters during World War II in the Pacific and the European theaters, are are you looking at, like, what they're collecting or how you're getting them or? So my research follows, like, three kind of um it's broken up into like three sections one is the collecting process in itself um another one is the legality of collecting during wartime and then in the third part since i'm a public historian of course um it's about how museums deal with these collections coming into um their organization so for the first part the collecting stories, like it, it amazes me, like when I talk about this with people, because I just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> um, like people don't know these kind of stories, even though they're out there. So like in the Pacific, the collecting looked a lot different than it did in Europe, because in the Pacific, you, they're fighting on islands that either weren't inhabited or they're inhabited by like a small population that's been brainwashed to you know, think that Americans are going to kill them. So they need to hide and stay away. So the main people they're stealing from or, you know, collecting things uh, are Japanese soldiers that they've killed already. So our guys would, you know, strip the bodies, um, mutilate the bodies. They would keep, you know, pieces of bones and skulls. Um, some guys would like cut off ears and make necklaces out of them. Ooh, um, that's some It's a lot of nasty things, but you know, like they didn't consider the Japanese soldier to be a human because like all, all propaganda uh, in the, in the United States, like treated them as if they were rats and you can't steal from a rat. So what's the big deal? You know, um, it was very brutal fighting in the Pacific was very gruesome and nasty. Um, It didn't help that like the terrain itself was also pretty unforgiving in terms of like, Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So these stories are all over their diaries. Like, you know, every, a lot, a lot of soldiers, 
published memoirs and in the decades after the war. And these stories are like in every single memoir of, you know, um, going to check a body to see if it was an officer because officers carried more rare weapons, you know, that they could keep or, um, talking about a friend that they saw with a skull and like, there's, there was an entire poem. I think it was by uh, Winfield Scott that detailed the process of preparing a skull to take it home as a souvenir. Mm. It's disgusting stuff. And officers knew about this. Um, They were supposed to encourage their guys not to do it, not because it was technically a war crime, but because they didn't want them putting themselves in more danger than they were already in. You know, they knew that their guys would like, do stupid things to go find, you know, the rarest souvenir and they didn't want them getting themselves killed over it. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It does. Yeah. So, um, actually fun, fun story. Um, president Roosevelt was gifted a letter opener from a guy who returned from the Pacific and it was like in the newspaper and everything, him, you know, this like ceremony and he's gifted this letter opener. And then he finds out that the guy had totally carved it out of a Japanese thigh bone. Oh. And yeah, so FDR is like, oh, no, I'm going to give this back. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> this but isn't no, okay. I'm not really looking for a human body bone. Yeah, no. Um, so, but anyway, um, in museums, a lot of these things that were brought back from the Pacific Theater are almost like backdrops for our exhibit cases. So if you've been to any museum that has a World War II exhibit, you probably notice um, the Japanese like bonsai flags in the background, you know, they're like hanging in the back, almost as decoration, not quite, you know, as an actual artifact. Right. And nine times out of 10, that one is going to be stolen off the body of a dead Japanese soldier and brought back and then later donated to the museum. I, I, so I went recently to, uh, in New Orleans, there's a fantastic World War II museum. It's like, I, it used to be oh, yeah. a museum and now it's like the <coughs> World War II museum. And the first time I visited, I think it was even like before Katrina and they had this whole part of the exhibit where they talked about the propaganda wars, um, mm-hmm. in the theater. And it was fascinating seeing like, you're right, how um, Americans considered, um, you know, the, the Japanese to be rats or vermin. There was like this really racist piece of propaganda. It was like, how to tell the friendly Chinese from the evil Japanese. Right. And also from the Japanese point of view, where it was like FDR and the Western world were all oni or, or, or demons and, you know, um, mm-hmm. babies and all kinds of weird stuff. But I never thought about the kinds of artifacts that then were also included in the museum and how they might've gotten there. Cause when you see like a U.S. soldier's uniform, you're like, Oh, his family donated it when he died or something. Mm-hmm. It, it, that is how a lot of those things got there. Um, there are a lot of news articles I've used in my research that are like, um, this guy died and his sons and daughters and nieces and nephews were going through his attic and they found all these things that, you know, he brought back from world war two and, they're going to donate them to this museum or whatever. Um, that That's just, that's what happens nowadays. And since World War II veterans started dying off, you know, in greater numbers, 
like in the nineties and stuff, those, those collections have just ballooned. And when you see them on display, it's usually, I've done a, I've been to the World War II Museum and spent six hours going through their exhibits, you know, looking for these things. Um, But you'll usually see like a, a tag on it that'll say like donated by the family of this guy or found on, you know, the island of Kwajalein, you know, something like that. It never addresses, you know, the the truth about how those artifacts were obtained in the first place. Yeah, I actually think it would make a really cool like history walking tour or like podcast or something to like do more of a deep dive of like how museums get these artifacts and where they come from. Like I can just thinking of like the British Museum and how much of that shit was stolen. <laughs> oh God, yeah, like, Belgian marbles. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And there's been such a focus lately on you know um, cultural patrimony and keeping artifacts in their like country of origin. You know, no matter whether that country existed at you know that time point or not. Like you can get in so much trouble now for, you know, finding something in Egypt and bringing it back to the United States. You know, that's a big no-no. Like it has to stay there. <laughs> but some of our museums, especially in Britain and America, um, don't want to let go of those things. They just don't. They're like, yeah, we're going to impose the standard on everyone else, but we really like our stuff. <laughs> we're not going to get rid of it. Right. Like I heard the argument for the British Museum of like, well, our museum is free and open to all. So like, you should be glad that we're protecting these artifacts for you. Yeah. And everybody's supposed to be like, oh, thank you. Great imperial, you know, leader. <laughs> it's <laughs> ridiculous. $100 plane ticket to get over there to see the shit you stole from me. Yep. It's, it's total bullshit. The United States did it to Iraq too. Um, you know, like when, uh, when we you know, went into Iraq and like, what was that? Like 2003. Um, we sent guys to protect the national museum, the Iraqi museum. And, but we didn't get there in time. Uh, it was looted beforehand and, you know, all these precious artifacts from, you know, like biblical eras were just gone. And we took like some, um, archives like manuscripts papers and brought them to the united states for safekeeping i believe this uh, i believe this is iraq i really hope i'm not wrong now um we will add a note in the show if it's wrong <laughs> <laughs> but we we copied them and made microfilms and then sent the microfilms back so Ooh. yeah it's like we're gonna keep these papers here you know because they're just safer here but you can have microfilms <laughs> it was it's ridiculous. Why not the other way around? You got the info from it. Like, yeah, send the papers on. back. It's yeah, it's it's stupid. It, it's just so stupid. It makes me makes me angry. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. Well, okay. So, like, I I think I'm getting a sense of the kind of field that you're in. But like, how do you do research on this? Like, what what does it look like? Like a day to day as a grad student studying you know, collectors and collections like this? So, for the, I mean, for the first part, it's a lot of, it was a lot of reading about collecting theory, a lot of, you know, Roland Barth and Benjamin and even like studying, like my historians will know who all these names are, <laughs> studying <laughs> like 
Hegel, you know, like all the like old school theorists. <laughs> and um, and then it was just digging into memoirs, is getting my hands on as many memoirs, diaries, unpublished or not, that I could from soldiers from World War II. And following their stories, following the artifacts, and then um, going into museums. So I've, I've gone to, like, the World War II Museum is an obvious one in New Orleans. I can't do this without going there. Um, but I've also checked out the Smithsonian, um, the National Infantry Museum in Columbus. Um, my next one, actually, there's one more I have to go to, is the Pratt Museum in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It's where they have the museum for the 101st Airborne, which is the group um, that they made Band of Brothers after. Easy Company was in 101st Airborne. Right. Um, and then, like, just some other small ones, like the Oklahoma History Center. You know, it's, you know, trying to get, like, a good sample of of museums to, to look at how they represent um, their artifacts in their World War II exhibits. So then what's been your favorite, like what museum do you think has done the best job of like putting a lot of this kind of stuff into context? The Smithsonian, definitely. Um, the Smithsonian Museum of American History, their exhibit on World War II, I didn't find a single thing that looked like it had questionable provenance, which is um, a provenance is like a history of ownership. So you can prove, you know, where this artifact has been and how it's been transferred through time. Um, theirs was just exquisite. It was amazing. So then also as a follow-up, if a museum does receive a donation that, that does have this questionable origin or, you know, they, they run analysis and they're like, oh, this is human bone. Like what, what do you think is the appropriate thing to do with it? And like, what do museums often do? Like, do you just hand it back to the person and say, no, we can't take this. <laughs> if it's human remains, should you inter them? Like, you know. Well, there, okay, so there have been cases of human remains found in homes. Um, there's a really cool story from like Colorado. I say it's cool, other people say it's macabre, but <laughs> the police like raided this home and they found a skull and it had, you know, Guadalcanal written on it and like names like etched in it. And so they called the coroner and they had the coroner come get this skull and the family was like no that was my grandpa you know Ramones and they're like this is a person's skull it belongs in a cemetery yeah so they took it and um, worked on efforts to repatriate it to Japan <clears throat> which is what I feel should happen to a lot of these things um, a lot of artifacts beyond human remains I don't know if people, I have not come across any stories, I should say, of people bringing in human remains to museums. <laughs> but, you know, it could be out there. And if anybody listening knows of any of those stories, please hit me up. Um, but when it comes to non-human remains, we have an ethical obligation in museums to ensure legal title to something when it's accepted and um, put into the collections. And in my opinion, you just can't have legal title to these things that were stolen, whether they were stolen off dead bodies or live ones. Um, so they need to 
you know, reject the offer of donation and maybe suggest, you know, looking into repatriation. That's my, that's my opinion though. Yeah. I was thinking also about the, how many times I've seen dead bodies donated to any kind of museum. And the closest I can think is like medical schools taking, you know, articulated skeletons. And there's like the story of H.H. Holmes from Chicago mm-hmm. who, who murdered a bunch of women. And then some of them, he like cleaned their bones and sold them to the local medical schools. I didn't know that. I don't know a whole lot about H.H. Holmes, but oh, that's so creepy. <coughs> yeah. They're all oh. super creepy. Like a buddy who was a medical, who like had an in with one of the oh, medical schools or something. And I, it's not clear how many bodies they did that, there he did that too, but it was a thing. Oh, that's scary. There is um, <laughs> the Phoebe, I think it's the Phoebe Hearst uh, Anthropology Museum at Berkeley has two, they have a lot of human remains because it's an anthropology museum, um, but they have two bodies that were brought back from Japan by a lieutenant who got permission to bring them back from his friend. Like he did, who was another lieutenant, you know, he didn't get like proper permission, but um, people have been calling for them to repatriate those, those skeletons for, I mean, ages since they knew they've had them. Um, But they try to say that they were civilians who committed suicide on the Island on Saipan, which happened a lot, but, um, other people are saying they're probably dead soldiers, but there's no way, there's no way to know. So they just have these two dead Japanese bodies that some douchebag lieutenant bought, brought back in there. They refused to send them back to Japan for a proper burial. That's such a weird souvenir to want to take home. Like, I guess oh, I yeah. get more like a rare weapon or dog tags, but like body parts, I think are in general is a weird souvenir. But I mean, when you think about it this way, like for the Pacific, at least when these people are being regarded as animals, it's almost like a hunting expedition. Like, you know, people love to hang up the stuffed heads of, you know, their game on their walls, you know, like it's, it's not really any different to them. As long as you see them as animals, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Because you don't see this happening in Europe. In Europe, it's the collecting is so different. It's um, it's guys, you know, just like taking watches off of dead bodies, maybe, or um, they robbed a lot of homes, especially in um, France and Germany. Um, France because they didn't feel like the French were thankful enough for their, you know, their saving, but Germany because you know they just had opportunity. Um, so, but less so in other occupied countries like the Czech Republic or Poland or something like that. Right. But so, I mean, they just, you know, they stole rugs and silver sets and anything like of value really, rather than, you know, something that would just be cool to take home. It's very different. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I've heard like a couple of stories of like, you know, taking home a Luger pistol or something to, to kind of show like, Oh, I was in this, this theater of war. Yeah. The Luger was a very popular one um, because it was so rare. Like, you know, you could only have that if you got it off a dead German or, you know, any German soldier really. Um, that's the only way you could have got that. So it kind of like proves your manliness. But um, the, I think the really cool ones are like, <laughs> there's this one okay that I should tell you guys about. Um, 
it is Easy Company from the 101st Airborne um, Band of Brothers. They don't, they kind of show this in the Band of Brothers show. I don't know that really people like pay attention to it. But when Easy Company like stormed Hitler's Eagle's Nest in Germany, um, they got to, you know, they're the first ones there. They're going through everything. And one of the guys, uh, Alton Moore, found a photo book, like a photograph album of Hitler's and kept it like as a souvenir. And like people talked about him having it. So some higher ups, you know, some of his commanding officers like tried to get it from him. And he had Major Dick Winters um, like cover for him. And he, he transferred him to like um, the commanding office to be like a Jeep driver. So he like cut open the Jeep seat and hid this photo book under his ass, quite literally in this Jeep. <laughs> and he managed to get it home. And um, even the government has like tried to get this thing back from him Um forever and no one knows where it is today like his family he's he's passed away since but his family like won't 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 give it back they have no idea where it is so they this is a hard thing to fight <laughs> yeah but it's, you know like that is that is one really cool souvenir but i could see why our government wanted it you know because photographs are proof of people being in a certain place at a certain time, you know, complicity, that kind of thing. They can use photos in, you know, the Nuremberg trials, but like, right. no, I'm not going to give it. Or even like, there's also the fear of like the reason I, so I've been to Berlin and they showed where like Hitler had a bunker there. Mm-hmm. And rather than being a museum, it's just, it, they filled it with concrete and they put a parking lot on top of it. And they were like, we don't want this to be, a site of pilgrimage for people that hold the same kind of ideology. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that makes sense because I'm someone who would totally want to see the bunker, but I know that there are people out there who would use it for that exact purpose because they do that with like his, um, I think it's, is it his childhood home maybe in Austria or the house he was born in something like that. It's like a business office now, but people will go to it and like reverence. It's really weird. People are yeah, crazy. and you, you don't want to lose that history, but you certainly don't want to deify it. Yeah, no, not at all. It's a it's a hard line to walk in Germany when it comes to how you um, interpret and represent your history of World War Two. Yeah, it really is. Well, we have our own hard line to walk here with the. Uh, Antebellum, Antebellum South and the Civil War. Oh, absolutely. We do. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, well, I, like, I could go off on a spiel there, but I wanted to ask you, so you're in your fourth year, which I assume means that you're you're kind of close to wrapping up-ish? Oh, my gosh, I am. So <laughs> I this, uh, this next year is just, actually, it should be starting right now. I have to kick my own ass to do it. But I need to finish my dissertation so I can defend it in March. And graduate in May and make real money because that's what happens to newly minted PhDs, right? We make all the money. <laughs> right. Well, so do you want to stay in academia or, or like what are your future plans? I do. I really thought if, well, when I started my master's at Auburn, I had no intention of completing a PhD. Um, and then as I got closer to finishing, I learned about MTSU and their 
a public history program. And I was like, I'm, I have to do that. That's my calling. And I really, I've always loved museums and museum work, but I started TAing and getting to like teach my own sections. And I have never felt more at home than I do in a classroom. Like I, I love it so much. So I've spent the last year doing a teaching residency where I like, you know, taught my own classes, my own curriculum, you know, my deal, my show. (laughs) And it, it was the time of my life. I love it so much. So I am um, looking for teaching jobs in the public history field. So there aren't a whole lot of public history PhDs in the first place. So when those jobs pop up, it's not like, as big of a rush, you know, with applicants as it is for regular history jobs. Right. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I wish you all the best of luck with that. <laughs> like, Thank I you. No, do you know how much fun it is? I mean, to have a class, you know, have like these, you know, 40, 50, whatever students, like looking at you and just absorbing everything you say, like, I'm going to make my own little socialist party. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I try to give them fair, even in balanced, you know. I sneak in my own little agenda, though, of course. I don't, I, I literally don't think it's possible for teachers to not, if, if you're not showing any of your personality, then there's definitely something that gets through. Yeah, no. And the first time I showed up on Rate My Professor, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> they love me. They really love me. <laughs> Time of my life. So do you want me to tell you like one final story? Yes. To send this off? Okay. So there was something in World War II called the Hungarian gold train. And the Germans used it to haul um, stolen goods from Jewish families and individuals that they were about to send to concentration camps or death camps. And so in Hungary. So they would take all their things. Um, they would issue the the Jews receipts like, you know, you'll get this when we get there. And then once the Jews were put on their train, they would take all their belongings, separate them into categories, you know, throw out their luggage kind of thing and send that train full of their goods to Berlin. So when the war was ending and um, they, you know, the Russians and the U.S. and Brits are like closing in on Berlin. They send this train out towards Hungary to try and, you know, salvage the goods. But it gets stopped in Austria. They have to like hide it in a cave where, of course, we find it really quickly. And our soldiers start stealing the things off of this train. So they probably think it's, you know, Germans who are throwing on their fur coats and their, you know, all their gold rings and all this stuff to try and save them from looting. But really, they're they're robbing this train of the property of now probably deceased Jewish families. Did they ever, do you think the soldiers ever learned where this stuff was coming from? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, they did. Because um, after we captured it, um, the U.S. government kind of like, you know, they like to take control of things. So they were trying to figure out what to do with all these goods. And of course, the first option that was thrown out was try to find who it belongs to and fucking get it back. And that, of course, proved to be too big a job because those receipts weren't real. And, you know, all these things were thrown in together. So and most of those families were deceased. So 
Um, instead, they decided to um, take the value of those goods and donate it to um, Jewish aid societies, you know, to help people, the survivors of the Holocaust to, you know, resettle in life essentially. But the problem with that was the value of those goods in like current uh, currency would be about $4 billion. And they only gave about $25.5 million current currency value. I mean, so where the other, you know, three and a half billion dollars went. Right. Disappeared into the ether. Yeah. It's kind of a sick story. But I was, I guess, I that's not a fun so story to end on, but it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I think it's emblematic of a lot of, you know, times of great turmoil. Mm-hmm. Things are hard to replace. Absolutely. You took them Except from. for art. We can sniff that shit out, apparently. We can, you know, find, we can find the dog of the artist if we wanted to. But, you know, with all these other things, eh, it's too big of a job. (laughs) So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think think that is a good, interesting place to to leave the podcast and let people ponder that a bit. So I want to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast and leave me a a, uh, review on iTunes. Your review helps me reach a larger audience and it helps me get more interesting guests on the show. In addition, I have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast. That means that you can donate a little bit of money and help support the production costs uh, because current um, Tyler Dammy friend of the show has been editing the show. Uh, But we really like to make it a more sustainable product. Um, if you want to hear what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter at phdrinking. I also have a personal account that is at Sadie Witt. And then Heather, how would you like listeners to be able to find out more about you and your work? I don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I have a Twitter handle. It's at hmcb87. That's hmcbee87. My Twitter is pitiful. It's usually just me retweeting Philip DeFranco stuff. But um, if not, search me on Facebook. That's actually the best place for all of my my research fun is on there. Great. And as always, I'll make sure to include a few links about your research in the podcast description, as well as that Twitter handle, just in case listeners didn't catch that. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I love talking about my research anytime. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Um, Yeah, well, and to all you listeners out there, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.